Would you please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We are looking at verses 1 through 11 in total, but I just want to zero in on the the two concluding verses, verses 10 and 11, to just show us where we're going, because we're going to be walking through a number of things that he talks about here today. And so we'll, we'll take those in turn. But this is where we're going with Ecclesiastes chapter 2 here. He says, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus, I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold... All was vanity and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. Let's pray. Father, speak truth to us today from your word. And may we choose to hear it in the love that you have for us. Please uh, do not allow the devil to steal away your word from our hearts. But instead, let it, let it be sown in good soil. Let it bear much fruit in our lives to your glory even the fruit of salvation. Would you impress upon us the need to listen with all our might this morning and to welcome and not reject what you say to us? Amen. All right, so we're in the middle of a grand experiment being conducted by the legendary King Solomon. He, he is a man who with unrivaled authority in possession of unlimited wealth and divinely blessed with uncommon insight. And he's seeking, this is his grand experiment, he's seeking to find satisfaction and meaning in life under the sun, which is Solomon's way of saying by secular means alone, without the consideration of God. This is nothing that I would advise any of you to do. God is to be at the center of your life, not on the sidelines. Be that as it may, after Solomon had searched in every conceivable way, he came to a rather surprising conclusion, which he told us in verse 2 of chapter 1. All is vanity. All his efforts to find meaning in the various aspects of life under the sun amounted to nothing more than frustration and humility. That's what anyone who searches this world for meaning but leaves God out of the equation will eventually discover. Apart from God, all is vanity. True meaning and happiness in life, it will be found only in Jesus Christ. All of God's wonderful gifts are meaningless without Him. This is one of the less obvious consequences of the curse of Adam's sin. Namely, that mankind is perpetually searching for a satisfaction they cannot find apart from God. Christ, then, is the key to life. Without Him, all is vanity. This is what I'm calling the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. So Solomon is on this quest, mainly because his heart had wandered from the Lord. He has allowed his heart to be turned away from being wholly devoted to the Lord, his God. But but God has sovereignly caused his loss and his frustration from this foolish venture 
to be for our spiritual benefit and growth. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's account of what he learned from all of his wanderings after he had repented and returned to the Lord. He explored life apart from God and he found it utterly lacking. And through this book, he desires to convince his readers not to repeat his same mistake. If it is your desire to learn from the wisest man who ever lived, then he will tell you there is only one way to live your life. After all his experiences, his investigations, his considerations about seeking a meaningful and satisfied life, the the conclusion that he came to is fear God and keep His commandments. And that is the general conclusion that we are working toward. That's at the end of the book. And it's important that we keep this in sight, always on the forefront of our minds as we work our way step by step through the book. Now, his first efforts to use wisdom to figure out life failed. It was a grievous task that amounted to nothing more than striving after wind. He's the wisest man who ever lived, and he found that all of his wisdom couldn't figure out life. Not to be deterred, he launched into a second grand experiment, that of exploring hedonism. Maybe the key to living a happy and meaningful life is found in in the many fun and entertaining and pleasurable things in the world. And so he says here in chapter 2, verse 1, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. So we're in the middle of looking at this second attempt to find life's meaning apart from God. This sermon is part two of a sermon I started last week entitled The Futility of Pursuing Pleasure. The lesson to be learned here, it's a very important one. It's this. Forsake the pursuit of pleasures that cannot satisfy and find lasting joy in the goodness of God. Now, we left off last week looking at the pleasures that Solomon explored so that we could learn an important lesson. The futility of pursuing pleasure as a way of making life meaningful. Surprisingly, what we find is that from Solomon's day all the way up to right now in the present, people are turning still to the same basic pleasures, laughter, alcohol, possessions, sex. And so our first application that we began last week is this one. Learn the futility of pursuing pleasure. So we're in the middle of this application. We're still learning here about how futile it is to pursue pleasure as a way of finding meaning in life. So one of the first obvious observations that we made, though, was just how self-focused pleasure is. Seeking pleasure is self-focused. One of the reasons hedonism is futile is because it's all about you and the pursuit of your pleasures. It is seductively self-focused. And as you read through these verses, you find Solomon referring to himself over and over and over and over about all the things that he did to please himself and only himself. And I tend to think that that these references to self, which are so abundant in this section, it was Solomon's way to subtly make this point. It's self-focused. It's futile. And then we began looking at the specific pleasures that Solomon pursued. And I was careful to point out I'm going to remake this point again because we we will easily not hear this. And I'm going to make it again later. Pleasure itself is, is not wrong. It's not against God. 
in any way to want to be happy. One of the greatest advertisements for the goodness of God is the joy that He gives to His people in any and all of life's circumstances. God delights in delighting us. The problem arises when we seek enjoyment without regard to Him. And Solomon wants us to see this. Now, seeking pleasure apart from God is futile. So this, this is all under the idea of learning this lesson that we need to learn. Secondly, seeking pleasure apart from God is futile. So we were able to get through two examples last week. We got through laughter and we got through alcohol. Is laughter the secret to living a happy and successful life? No. No, laughter can certainly bring some much appreciated moments of comic relief into our lives, but it cannot make a lasting difference in your life. What does it accomplish? Solomon asks in verse 2. Well, next Solomon experimented with alcohol. He says in verse 3 that he explored how to stimulate or, or cheer his body with wine. Some believe uh, he explored wine with moderation, while others say he explored it as far as inebriation. It could be either. could be both. Uh, it's difficult for us to say for sure, but, but if you're looking, here's the, here's the main point. This stays the same whether or not, however you view his experiment here, if you're looking to take hold of happiness through alcohol, whether as a connoisseur or as a drunkard, you won't find it there. People look to alcohol, they look to other legal drugs like marijuana to alter their mind and their mood so that they can really, quote, have fun. But Solomon would warn you about seeing alcohol as your friend. The Bible sees wine as an accompaniment to merriment, not the primary source. The pursuit of alcohol and drugs will assuredly lead you off the path of joy in God and headlong into the ditch of sorrow and misery. And he wants us to hear him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You think alcohol is your friend, you will come to regret it in the end. Man, I'm, I'm rhyming without even trying there. i got to write that down. That was a good one. That's where we left off last week. In addition to laughter and alcohol, the preacher next turned to what pleasures could be found in possession. So this is, we're picking up from last week right here. What pleasure can be found in possessions? And I don't know if that completely covers what we're talking about here in the next few verses, but it's really, possessions is my umbrella term to, to speak of the things that he makes and he acquires for himself. We're talking about homes and gardens and even slaves and all of that. So possessions is what we're looking at now. You know, before MTV Cribs, before the Kardashians, there was Robin Leach. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. It was one of the early pioneers of all the reality TV shows that, that are so popular today, of which I mentioned a couple there. So beginning in 1984... For the next 11 years, Robin Leach blazed a new trail, you know, in our celebrity and wealth-obsessed culture. And his tagline was, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. You remember that? 
he shamelessly showcased the, the decadent lies of the uber-rich from those who outfitted some massive limo with a hot tub or the $50 million palace in the sky, the private jet of a Saudi businessman. And the show was a product of its time, premiering during an era of just heightened materialism that was also reflected in other TV shows that were popular of its day, like Dallas and uh, Dynasty. Now, we can be certain that if, if time travel were possible, Robin Leach absolutely would have gone back to have King Solomon on his show. His lifestyle set the standard for rich and famous. Listen to how he described the projects that he embarked on and the possessions that he acquired. Look at verse 4. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself which, uh, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. So Solomon was more than a wealthy, wise king. He was, as we call him today, before the Renaissance, he was a Renaissance man. He was an architect of both buildings and landscapes. He was a builder. He was a developer. He designed and built his own palaces. In 1 Kings, it tells us that he took 13 years to build his own house. One room contained three rows of 15 cedar pillars that were probably about three stories high. There were cedar beams on top of those holding up the ceiling and all the walls were paneled with cedar planks. His house had artistic windows. It had elaborate frames around all the doorways. There was a second room. It was called the Hall of Pillars. There was another room called the Hall of Judgment. And throughout the entire palace, he says that costly stones were embedded from the structure, uh, from in, within the structure, from the foundations all the way up to the ceiling. All in all, the estimate is, is that his palace had about 11,250 square feet of floor space. And that, in comparison to the 2,700 square foot of the temple that he built for God. He was equally skilled in viticulture, right? The making of wine. He designed and planted many vineyards that served to supply his daily needs, his many lavish banquets. The ponds that he made, they, they functioned as reservoirs large enough to irrigate his lush gardens, fruit orchards, and, the, and he says a forest of growing trees. Now, all of these projects could come from the mind, only from the mind of a great man like Solomon. What should give you pause as to the massive scope of all that Solomon built is the fact that all of his projects that he mentions here, they are all in the plural. <laughs> Houses, palaces, vineyards, gardens, parks, trees, pools. One theologian, he started comparing the similarities of certain words that Solomon combines and he uses here with words that, are, remember this is in the Hebrew, that are also found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And I agree with this guy's belief that there is a link 
between the two. What he describes here in Ecclesiastes 2 and Genesis 1 and 2 and the clusters of words that he uses. He believes that the point Solomon was making here in Ecclesiastes 2 is that he was not just posing as king, but even at least for a time as God. These are all Solomon's efforts to recreate a secular Garden of Eden. Where all of the fruits that one desires are available, nothing forbidden. Wow. His goal is to create paradise on earth. God, though, made the Garden of Eden for man to enjoy. Solomon, on the other hand, made it for himself to enjoy. All all, all the time, repeating over and over again, for myself, for myself, for myself. These places were not for the public to enjoy. They were personal pleasure projects. So his vast projects, well, they naturally needed a great workforce to manage and maintain them on, on a daily basis. So he says that he bought male and female slaves... He says, I had homeborn slaves. And the idea here is that he actually had enough slaves that were born to the slaves that he already owned, the homeborn ones, and yet he still bought more, likely from the surrounding nations. You know, one of the things that money buys is convenience. Money buys convenience. If you don't have the time, but you have the money, you can pay other people to do all kinds of things for you. They can make your dinner. They can clean your house. They can change your oil. They can mow your lawn and on and on the list goes. You can also buy gadgets and appliances that chop your food and wash and dry your clothes and clean your dishes. And all of these things are things that we ourselves actually can do. But for the sake of convenience, we pay others or we buy things that will do it quicker or easier for us. There's nothing wrong with that. You hear me? (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. This is essentially a budget decision. If you have the money, well, you have the option. Less money, fewer options. Which, you know, that usually describes the early days of marriage, right? When you, when you have your first job and you've got the kids coming and you got, you've got nothing. At that season of our life when we were having our six children, you know what my kids called me? The no monster. I was the no monster. Why? Because I was the one who knew our budget couldn't handle saying yes to all the treats and all the movies and all the all the places that they would like to have gone to. So I was the no monster. Now, in Solomon's case, he had no budget. No budget. The sky was the limit. And what he lacked in appliances and gadgets, he made up for in slaves. Slaves represent the ultimate inconvenience. Solomon bought people to do whatever was needed to make his life more convenient. He had an army of people doing anything and everything that he didn't want to do himself. And this was all a part of his pursuit of pleasure. Slaves and servants eliminated the need for any labor or effort on his part. Now next, Solomon mentions all the animals that he owned. He says, also I possess flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. 
Now, don't just dismiss this as something we can't relate to because we're not an agrarian society. And none of, I mean, the most anybody owns here, are, I think Bill has some llamas and, and uh, some chickens. I mean, that's about it. It doesn't go much further than that. But we're talking about herds and flocks. When the Bible, des- here's just to put it in perspective. When the Bible describes when Job lost all his wealth, it talks about him losing his herds and his flocks. So Solomon here, talking about all his animals, what is he doing? He's further flaunting the extent of his wealth. And notice he says herds and flocks, that they were more numerous than those who preceded him in Jerusalem. That's two people, Saul and David, his dad. He's basically saying, I had larger herds. I have more cattle. Herds are cattle and oxen. Flocks are sheep and goats. He says, I had more. And I think a way to put all that he's describing here into perspective, the orchards, the gardens, the herds, the flocks. This is what it would be currently. If you had the funds to buy for yourself and your use alone a gourmet grocery store. And whenever you were hungry, you just walked in and and grabbed something off the shelf and left the wrapper on the floor and ate it right there. That's the essence of what he's saying, because all of these things were where his supply came from. You know, when the queen of Sheba visited Solomon at his place, it says that she marveled at the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters in their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. And it says there was no more spirit in her. It, it, as great as her reign was as the queen of Sheba, she felt like a pauper in comparison to Solomon. We're also told that she was that we're also told what was prepared each day in his kitchens. In First Kings four, it says Solomon's provision for one day was thirty cores of fine flour, and I, I was going to look up what a core is, but I think thirty cores amounted to something like fifteen hundred. Uh, what's a bag of flour? Like a bag of flour. Like 1,500 of those a day. So 1,500 cores of flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen. So he went organic and range-free there. And then 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. One day. That's one day. And all of it was so that Solomon's every culinary whim could be satisfied. It would be like if you lived in, and this would be minuscule in comparison, but this is, again, to to modernize this, you lived in the presidential suite at Caesar's Palace, and every day you dined at the Bacchanal Buffet, the largest buffet in Las Vegas. You just walked down there and just started you know, roaming through the, the, the buffet every day. It has, not, it has 10 kitchens, 9 chefs, 250 menu items. And you're like, hmm, I think I'll have this today. That was Solomon's norm. Now, we already know that Solomon had a lot of money. It came from many different sources, including the heavy taxation of, of the people of Israel. But in addition, he was given many treasures as tribute from the surrounding nations. And I think that's what's being mentioned here in verse 8. It says, Also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. 
So these were the things, let's say, that a visiting ambassador might bring because they heard that Solomon had an affinity for something that they had and they wanted a good relationship with him. So imagine, let's say, the, the, the ambassador of Ethiopia. He shows up and he says, oh, King Solomon, we have heard of your collection of Star Wars figurines. We would like to make a contribution to your collection. And so he hands them this elaborate box which he opens up and then this smile creeps across King Solomon's face as he looking down upon the rocket firing Boba Fett figure one of only 12 no two dozen that were made before they were pulled back it was a prototype because the somebody choked on the firing thing the firing rocket last time it went to auction this this big this much plastic $204,435. It's that kind of a thing that would be brought to Solomon as tribute. And with all of the gifts and all the tributes that he received, there were, I'm sure, you know, many moments like this. Like, oh, this is, this is wonderful as he hands it to his servant and they take it into the, the room of collections. And it sits there. You know, it shouldn't surprise us that Solomon desires that all of his possessions should be enjoyed and accompanied by another rare beauty of his day. Music. He says also in verse 8, I provided for myself male and female singers. So, again, this is hard for us to really appreciate because it's, it's the current day of AirPods and, and Beats and it's hard to understand you know, just how revolutionary this is. I remember still... When the Sony Walkman first arrived on the scene almost 45 years ago. It was the early 80s. And the Sony Walkman, just in case you don't know what a Sony Walkman is, you know, it's, it's basically about this size except it's rectangular in shape. You could, it, it's a tape cassette player that you could listen to 12 songs. But you had to pause and flip it over, of course. And, and, and you could do it with a wired Headphone set that that went over your ears. What did that mean? You could now listen to the music of your choice privately on the go. It was it boomed and and we're still booming in that whole department, right? As we go from one generation on, you know, up to the current day where we're listening now just on our iPhones now with AirPods. All of that was born, you know, uh, 45 years ago in the Walkman. Before that, you had to carry your box around on your shoulder. And everybody could hear your music and might annoy a bunch of people, but you didn't care. Music was a rare pleasure in Solomon's day. You went to the music. The music did not come to you. Let alone flow privately you know, into your own ears. But see, with all his wealth, Solomon brought the music into his own home. He hired entire choirs to come and to sing for him. I, I, I imagine them following him around you know, as he walked through his gardens, you know, and they're, they're singing, you know, as he follows, right? It would be maybe another perspective thing. I, you know, don't condemn me for what I list here. I just was trying here. It would be like inviting Elton John, Coldplay, BTS, the Boston Philharmonic, and Imagine Dragons all to come to your house to sing just for you. On the same day. So to the laughter. 
the alcohol, and all these possessions, Solomon mentions one last pleasure that he pursued, sex. Now, this is certainly a more common pleasure in that it wasn't something that only the wealthy could enjoy. But few people have ever experienced it on the same scale as King Solomon. Now, I've mentioned the size of his harem. 700 wives and princesses, 300 concubines. All of these women at his beck and call. Solomon's privileges, they represent the fantasy of every man, and I would say even of every woman. A woman wants to feel that she is more desired by a man than all the others that he could have. A man, of course, wants to, he imagines all the possibilities, right, of, of having many sexual partners to satisfy his sexual desires. So many today. And ever since this time, since the dawn of man, they've been lured into believing that this is the way to ultimate fulfillment. But let's understand that, that even, even the covenant goodness of intimacy in marriage, which which Solomon, by the way, celebrates in Song of Solomon. Even that, as good as it is, can provide us, cannot provide us ultimate satisfaction. God's design for the expression of love between husband and wife, it is indeed a wonderful blessing meant to be enjoyed and delighted in often. But when your alarm goes off, the next morning the bills the diapers the traffic the chores they're all still waiting for you see as wonderful as a gift from God as sex is it cannot bring about the gain that we lack under the sun under the sun something more is necessary for Solomon, no pleasure, no luxury, no convenience, no delight was too lavish or too much. So he's describing the life that most people can only dream about. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. No one's going to know your answer. You be honest with yourself. Do you envy him? Do you envy him? Be honest, right? It's, it's hard not to envy such abundance. Who wouldn't want to live like a king? Where your every whim is satisfied, where your every need is met, where others do the work that you don't want to do. If Solomon thought that something would bring him pleasure, he acquired it. Whether it was a person or a partner or a possession. Nothing nothing was out of his reach. Now, unless you think I'm, I'm exaggerating, let's listen to the preacher's own words himself, where he describes his ex the result of his experiment with pleasure. This was what we read earlier. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. If you filled all your days 
and all your waking moments indulging yourself in whatever pleases you, you would be the most happy person, right? If you never denied what you want, wouldn't you be satisfied? It makes sense, right? Until you understand and accept that that is not how God made man. We've seen that seeking pleasure, it's self-focused. It's futile apart from God. One last lesson to learn about the futility of pursuing pleasure is that it will leave you unsatisfied. It can only leave you unsatisfied. Remember that God made pleasure. He knows where we will find it and He knows where we won't find it. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, he says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. See, there are things that that we can want and that we think will be good. But God says, that's worthless. And the word here is very similar to Hevel. But it's not. It's a different word. It means empty, nothingness, vanity. You know, we've, we've all heard of the term empty calories before, right? All foods contain calories. But foods with empty calories, they provide you, your body, with immediate energy. But they're not useful for the things your body also needs, like building muscles, supplying vitamins and nutrients, making you actually feel full and satisfied. And that what does that mean? That means that when you start eating empty calories, what do you do? You eat more because it doesn't satisfy you. And so you end up taking in a lot more calories than you would have if you'd eaten something better for you. So the biggest thing that you gain from consuming empty calories is weight and also maybe diabetes. Those foods and drinks that are loaded with empty calories, I mean, you probably know what they are. Soft drinks, sports drinks, sweet tea, lemonade and energy drinks, alcohol, junk food, fast food, candy, cakes, donuts. I put that on the list. Yeah, I'll have to think about that one. If you want to lose weight, you have to stay away from these things. Or at least you have to consume them in moderation. But through the psalmist, God is telling us that there are empty pleasures in the world. They have the appearance of something pleasurable. I mean, a Big Mac, the way they put that on the screen or whatever, it's like, that's going to be good. But it's empty calories. And there are things in the world you go, that's going to be good. And it's empty pleasures. They fail to satisfy you but for a moment. And John gives a little more definition to what these things are. He says they're the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. See, if you disregard God's warnings that he gives you, like Solomon did, you will end up with the same result. Nothing was off limits to him. If his eyes desired it, he acquired it. He denied himself no fleshly indulgence that appeared to him, that appealed to him. He he told himself 
He deserved it. Seeing it as a reward, as he says, for all his labor. And this was his reward for all his labor. Like, man, this, this palace was tough to think about and design. I deserve me some pleasure. That's what he said. How often do we do that? I've worked hard this week. What is it that you do then to reward yourself? Same concept. Notice that in all of these pursuits, he says, my wisdom stood by me. And it's kind of hard, you know, from where we're at and where we're reading through all of this. It's hard to see how wisdom governed his pursuits. And as I said last week, having wisdom, because he, he was given divinely wisdom from God. Having wisdom, though, doesn't guarantee that you won't do foolish things. The question is not whether you know something is right or wrong, is it? The question is not whether you know something is good or bad, is it? The question is whether or not you fear God. That is the wisdom that we need guiding us in all of our pursuits. Pleasure included. But when it comes to pleasure, what lesson does Solomon want us to learn? Is pleasure something that should be the main pursuit of one's life? Living for the weekend. We describe our weeks typically in terms of the weekend. Monday's the farthest from, from Friday, so we're like, oh, the blues, right? Tuesday just happens, you know. Wednesday's hump day. Thursday is like exciting because the next day is Friday and maybe you'll call in sick and have a three-day weekend. Everything orients towards weekend. So be careful. You may be being drawn into the pursuit of pleasure without even realizing it's all about pleasure. Here's what he concluded about his grand experiment in verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold. <laughs> you know, behold. It's like, can you see him shaking his head? Behold. All was vanity. Striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun. See, a life that makes pleasure its main goal cannot satisfy your soul. It's an empty life. The picture with words that he paints is someone running around a field with a jar trying to catch the wind. Ridiculous. Fill your life with the pursuit after every possible pleasure, but there will still be nothing gained for you from living under the sun. That's what he's telling you. That's what he's warning us about. But you knew this already, don't you? You know this already. So the question is, what difference will knowing Solomon's conclusions make in your life. In comparison to Solomon, you have this much. He had it all. Are you thinking, well, if I had as much as he had, I'd have a way. Then you're envying him. You're not learning from him. He wants you to hear what he's saying. I had it all. And I did it all. And it was all vanity. Are you going to go on ending, envying the king who had everything but happiness? So now that you've learned why a life of pursuing pleasure is futile, I want to take a few minutes to make sure that we understand God's purpose for pleasure. 
So I, I said I'd repeat myself. I'm going to do this again because all this talk about pleasure kind of from a negative point of view can make us think wrongly about certain things. There is nothing wrong with enjoying yourself. There's nothing wrong with seeking to have a good time. In fact, many of the things that Solomon pursues, they're not bad in and of themselves. Solomon's not suggesting that it's wrong to do something that makes you happy. There are many things that bring happiness to our lives that we are absolutely free to enjoy. A nice home, beautifully landscaping your yard, a party with friends, a walk on the beach, walking through an art gallery, going on a roller coaster ride, collecting things that interest you, a delicious meal at a restaurant. But Solomon is pointing out, what he's pointing out is that, is that these are all temporary. They're momentary. They're vapor-like in their ability to give you pleasure. That's the truth about all earthly pleasure. All earthly pleasure is Havel. The home that you absolutely love to be in. It'll sell one day. Or maybe it'll burn down before then. Who knows? The flowers that you love to smell. They wilt. The party that you had a great time at ends. The gallery that you just love to sit and stare at that painting, it closes. you got to go home. The ride stops. The collection that you worked so hard to get together, it sits on the shelf. Or maybe it's never even gotten out of a box. The meal, it was so good, is consumed. The pleasure these things bring are transitory. They are unreliable. They can only bring temporary, momentary pleasure, but no lasting satisfaction. That is Solomon's point. These things bring pleasure, but only for a while. Can any of you relate to this? Have you ever gone on a vacation? You, I mean, you're anticipating like this week-long vacation. Let's just say Hawaii. You just can't wait. You know, the day, the anticipation, everything. And the day that it's ready to begin, you're already lamenting that it's going to end. Can anybody relate to that? You're already thinking like, man. And you're walking off the plane in Hawaii thinking, well, I'm going to have to walk back on the plane and go back home. That's why he calls pleasure Hevel. It doesn't last. And therefore, it can't sustain you. But if that is all that pleasure is, Havel, well then, what are we to do about it then? Why would you want to pursue something that is ultimately pointless? How are we supposed to feel about knowing that you can have everything you've ever wanted and, you, and it still won't be enough? You know, we, most of us here know who O.J. Simpson is. A lot of us only know him from the infamous trial, murder trial that took place in 1994. But many of you, I trust, know that before all of that, the reason why that was such a famous trial is because of what he was before. He was a very successful professional football player. He played throughout the 70s. He was an excellent running back for the Buffalo Bills and for the San Francisco 49ers. When his football career was over, he was so charismatic. He knew the game so well. He became a football commentator on TV. He even appeared in a couple of movies, a good one, Capricorn One. When he was at the height of his fame, here's what he said about his life. This is a quote. Life's been good to me. I have a great wife. 
good kids, money, my own health. Why am I so lonely and bored? I used to wonder why so many rich men commit suicide. I no longer wonder. Wow. We all seem to think that the problem to be avoided in life is pain. Avoid pain. Avoid pain. Sickness. Injustice. Trouble. Inequity. Mm, Stay away from it. Pain, though, is not the real problem. You know, pain works mysteriously in our lives. It is a mirror to our soul. It brings out the best and the worst of us. Pain puts your theology and what you really believe on display. Right? In the midst of tragedy, that's where you find out who you really are. Solomon's experiment here, it reveals that contrary to what we think, our real problem in life is not pain. Our problem is pleasure. While pain can bring about tremendous growth, what we do and what we seek for fun, it has a numbing effect upon our spiritual lives. Who is desperate for God when everything is going great? See, God's purpose for pleasure is simple. Your joy. God desires and delights in our happiness. It's all throughout Scripture. Let me just throw two Scriptures at you just just to make this point. Psalm 1 and Matthew 5. Each one uses the word blessed. The Hebrew word in Psalm 1 is asher. The Greek word in Matthew 5, you might have heard it, makarios. They both are translated blessed. But they, but they can equally be translated as happy. There's nothing trite about happiness. And, 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 the, and the, the translation blessed is really part of what it means to be happy. Don't we, don't we have a smile on our face? We're just, I'm so blessed. What are you saying? I'm so happy. There's nothing trite about that. These words include the idea of being supremely blessed, fortunate, well-off, flourishing. And so here's what Psalm 1 says. How blessed. How happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's just given you a recipe for happiness. Follow that, you'll be happy. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You know what he does? He gives eight consecutive statements that each begin with blessed are. And I heard one guy, I don't know if this is the best way. The be happy attitudes. That's a little bit too, you know, yippy skippy for me. But blessed are, happy are. But, but, the, but the crazy thing is what he lists. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, the gentle, and on and on. See, God desires you to be happy, but you've got to look to him to lead you into that happiness. Our dissatisfaction in life. You know what that is? That's a spiritual clue. Here's the clue of your dissatisfaction in life. You were made, not for earthly pleasures, but the pleasures of God. And one of the things that frustrates me is when I... Like, here, here's an example of the frustration that I feel. I'm going to relate this to God. So, I didn't ask permission before I said this, so no names will be given. 
Um, when I am making a dinner, I, that, I've mentioned that before I like to cook, and I'm working hard at a dinner, and I've got it all ready to go, and I'm like, all right, everybody come and eat, and then one of my kids will say, oh, I'm not hungry. Why? I was starving after class, and I had Chick-fil-A at 4 p.m., that frustrates me. I just went to all this effort for, for a meal. But you know what? I bring that up not to make anybody feel bad, whose names I won't name. It would be that way. It would be that way for us if earthly pleasures could satisfy. Here's what we would say. Hey, thanks for indwelling me, God. But I just bought a car. I'm good. I'm good. I'm not hungry for you. I'm full. See, we would never recognize our need for God if earthly pleasures could satisfy us. But see, God has made us only to be satisfied in Him. When you set God aside, however you're doing that, when you set God and His will for you aside, you are setting aside true joy and lasting satisfaction. And this is one of the main reasons why God inspired Solomon to write the book of Ecclesiastes to convince you and to convince me not to love the world and its pleasures. God is not trying to depress you in saying this. Your car, your house, your bank account, your stocks, your clothes, your raise, your hobbies, All of these and many more, they are all poor substitutes for the God who made you to be satisfied in a relationship with Him. So your dissatisfaction is pointing to your need to turn to Him so that you will lastly, and here's the last point, you will seek the God who created pleasure. Seek the God who created pleasure. If you notice back in verse 9, Look at again at Solomon's mindset about his projects. Then I became great. I increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. So he's talking about his daddy here, King David. And he's basically saying, you know, as great as my dad was, there's no desi- denying that, you know, I've surpassed him in greatness. Just, <laughs> just look around at my kingdom. And if David could have responded to his son here, I imagine, I imagine him saying this. Yes. Yes, Solomon. Solly, maybe he called it Solly. Yes, Solly. You have enriched yourself. You have enriched your kingdom. And you can truly have every, anything that you want in the world. But you will never find what you need amongst all the pleasures that you have pursued. And then this is what I think he would do. He would quote, from his own writings in Psalm 16. He would say, Son, in God's presence is fullness of joy. In God's right hand, there are pleasures forever. See, this is the difference that a heart wholly devoted to God makes in one's life. David had his own mistakes, his own vain pursuits, but his heart remained wholly devoted to God. He repented. Pleasure as God means it to be is a gift. It's a reward. God seeks, God desires to give those things to us. 
those who seek Him as the source of joy. While David's words are ultimately fulfilled in heaven, right? That's when we're going to truly understand Psalm 1611. You know, we can begin to taste that right now. We can taste God's goodness in laughter. That doesn't revel in immorality or vulgarity, but springs forth naturally among those uh, those who are able to laugh at themselves and all of the many inconsistencies and predicaments that we get ourselves into. That's a great way to enjoy time together, laughing at yourself. We taste God's pleasure as He meant it when we see wine as a gift that God meant to accompany life's joys, not supplant them. We taste God's joy when our homes are made ready to be used for hospitality and ministry, not just our own comfort. We taste God's joy when we create beautiful things that make us dwell on God's creativity and beauty and not just our own. We taste God's joy when we satisfy ourselves from the water of our own well, enjoying the one that God gave us and not chasing after all the ones God hasn't given us. Martin Luther, I think, put this the best. He said, if the Lord has given you a wife, one should now hold on to her and enjoy her. If you want to exceed these limits and add to this gift which you have in the present, you will get grief and sorrow instead of pleasure. So if you ever find yourself thinking that God is a spoil sport, if He's trying to you ever think that God is trying to keep you from pleasure or He's trying to take pleasure away from you, here's what you can know in that moment. This is just your sinful heart at work to deceive you. Once you learn that you can find your satisfaction in God, then all of the other gifts that He so generously gives, the laughter, the wine, the possessions, the sex, it can become the little gifts of pleasure that God intends them to be. So forsake the pursuit of pleasures that cannot satisfy. As Solomon has shown us, they are poor substitutes for the lasting joy that is found in the goodness of God. Heavenly Father, we, we do need to hear this frequently because our hearts are so um, easily lured in by all of the ways that the world dangles shiny things in front of us and makes us, tells us that we, without this or without that or without going here or there, that we are uh, not going to be as happy as we could be. Help us to rest in the truth that you are a God who loves to delight us and you also know how that can truly happen. Let us trust you. Let us walk by faith in this wicked world. Help us in Jesus. Thank you.